Amen. Thank you, Shuma ladies. Miss Heidi, appreciate that so very much. Great job. Grab your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. If you'll join me there, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. I'm excited about getting back in our study in God's prophetical times. Children, we have the, the box of candy and treats, and so after the close of the service, we'll be up here. You come see us if you would. And take some notes. You can show us those uh, pages of notes or answer our question tonight, and uh, we'll look forward to that. Appreciate you being back in the Lord's house tonight. It's been good to see good crowds today in spite of weather and things there. So, so very thankful for your faithfulness in that way and thankful for those who can at least join us via live streaming. Well, it's been just under two months since we were back. We were through our study or in our study here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 particularly. And uh, let's just kind of real quick just hit the broad points of what we've seen thus far in our consideration of God's prophetical timetable. We started out with understanding and uh, going to the past to understand the future. We saw that, number one, Christ arrived and died at God's appointed time. Nothing escaped God's perfect plan, the, that, that exact time that he designated for such. Number two, we we described, as the scriptures do, that the time we're living in right now is called the times of the Gentiles. Romans speaks heavily to it, and the reality that you and I are here as Gentiles, and we've been introduced to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and so here we are. Then we talked now specifically to the church, and much we might say in preparation of um, the rapture occurring. Um, we noted that this is the high time for every believer. Now you remember, I just want to draw attention and kind of correlate it to what we studied this morning. Uh, in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, when we looked at this point, we, we noted that verse. It says this, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time uh, to awake out of sleep. Ties in great to this morning, what we talk about redeeming the time, awake, and, and so forth. But if you'll notice in that verse, it has the word time twice. Knowing the time, it is high time. Now, it's interesting, two different Greek words, two different meanings for the, the word time. And um, the high time means, that time means hour, right now. This time right now designated, it's high time. And uh, that's the, the definition there. Knowing the time is the same word we studied this morning, keros. And uh, it literally means knowing the season of opportunity that we have. And I love that because that's, that's the impetus for you and I right now. In the times of the Gentiles, as we anticipate the rapture, um, the imminency of the rapture, as we study and we will note tonight, the reality is this is an opportunity for us. Brother Dave mentioned it this morning. The opportunity is at hand. You and I have the privilege um, to tell people about Jesus Christ. Can I just encourage you? Once you and I get to heaven, we won't have any opportunity to tell people about Jesus Christ. Everybody's going to know him. So right now is the opportunity. Now is the time, okay? Knowing the time, the opportunity. We just want to draw your attention to that. It ties in again, even today, the, uh, the reality of what we studied in this study, that we ought to reject that distracted attitude and different attitude, dismissive attitude accordingly, okay? Then we moved on, number four, to our point. That's where we kind of settled in the last few times together. We looked at the time when Christ returns to take his bride home with him. That is obviously called the rapture. We understand that. Then we looked at those major points, didn't we? Letter A. We believe in the rapture. We want to establish this and, and understand because there's many beliefs out there. There's many people who reject even the idea of a rapture and such, the literal rapture of Christ's church and so forth. So we studied that. We studied and understood we believe in a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial. We understood and studied those words. I think it's crucial for us to know what those words mean and to be able to define them when someone asks us, what do you believe? Why do you believe in a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial uh, rapture? Then we made the point that all ties together. We believe in the literal interpretation of God's word. 
And this is crucial to how we interpret scriptures, the literal interpretation. And it very much leads us down the path to the idea of the rapture and the teaching of the rapture, I should say. And then furthermore, we made the statement when we apply that same kind of uh, literal interpretation to the prophetical question of when the rapture is going to happen, what do we find? When we study the, uh, inter- the scriptures and interpret it literally, we find out that the rapture is imminent. It could happen at any moment, and uh, we are anticipating that reality. And then we, we obviously talked about the, um, uh, how we are consistent, okay? That little interpretation teaches that the reality of the rapture of the church and uh, the bride of Christ, the entirety of the church and such. So in doing, looking at that, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15. Do you remember the term that Paul used to describe that that was happening well he used that term mystery you remember that we talked about that the mystery and we we noted how god uh, used paul to write many portions of the new testament to educate assure us encourage prepare uh, the church for what lies ahead and i like this truth because we'll see it even tonight okay well, in a passage we look at as we get to the newer or the new information or the new subject matter Um, This concept of mystery, God says, I'm going to reveal little by little. I'm going to give you more and more. And so God uses, God uses Paul to do just that, right? And uh, reveal a little bit more, reveal a little bit more. And I love studying the different passages in the New Testament that do just that. Then we jumped ahead here to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. One of the basic uh, truths or tenets that we found was this. All of those believers, including the Thessalonians, the early believers, agreed with Paul about the imminent return of the rapture. That is crucial. It's a very good evidential point. And when you say, I believe in a premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture, is as we look at the New Testament church, in essence, the first century church, we find that they agreed with Paul. When Paul spoke of and preached an imminent rapture return of Jesus Christ to take the church home with him, the early church all agreed with that. He, he writes to the Thessalonians. We looked at this, and they're in agreement. I've already taught you this. You understand this. And the other churches were much the same way. And so we see that amongst the early believers, John and Peter and all of these all held that as we looked at those scriptures. We also noted that this passage, it, it deals with the resurrection of the believers and ties it to the rapture of the believers. And we noted verse 18. Remember how Paul closes it out? He says this, comfort one another with these words, right? You see that there uh, here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We look up the back, back to verse 14. There on, we understood that here's a statement or, or proof that he made was simply this. The, it rests upon the fact of Christ's death. It rests upon, it's supported by the reality, it's connected to Christ's death. And we made that statement that Christ's death is the condition needed to turn death into what Paul calls it here, even in verse 14. You see that? He calls death sleep. And so it's necessary for Christ to die for that to be the case. Also, verse 14 makes the point, the connection, the resurrection of the believer to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even the rapture of the living believers to the, connected to the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we focused in verse number 14. Look there again with me, if you will. It says this, for if we believe that Jesus died, there's the supportive connection to Christ's death, rose again, his resurrection, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And so we made the connection of that term, those two words, even so. It's very much a connective term, a transitional statement, connecting the resurrection of the deceased saints and the rapture of the living saints to Jesus Christ. And it answers their question, if you might remember, and I know we're going through this quick, but kind of bring us all up to speed to where we left off. The, the church here was worried. 
They were concerned. They were asking Paul, what about those believers that died and went on before us? What's going to happen? So they, uh, some had gotten in false teachers, and they had caused them to question what was going to happen. So Paul says, listen, God has allowed me to be the conduit of revelation yeah, to broaden your understanding of the mystery that I present to you. And I'm going to answer those questions. And so he does. He said, listen, this is all connected together. And he's encouraging them. This is a words of comfort, even as he says here. And so he makes this basically the statement, God is going to bring those deceased saints with him and raise up their bodies, as the rest of the verses say here. And this truth was to be of great comfort, right? And uh, you, uh, you might remember me saying, I've heard Christians tell me that the only thing they, they are disappointed about dying is they won't, take, they won't be able to take part in the rapture. What reality is, that that's not really a true statement because the fact is, whether you're alive or you've already passed away, you're dead in Christ, in that sense, you're going to partake in the rapture. It's going to be a joyous reunion and the resurrection of the body, reuniting the spirit. And if you're here on earth, the glorification of your body. I mean, it's going to be a joyous occasion that the entirety of the church is going to be there. The bride is going to be president. That's an exciting thing. And that's why he comes to the end of the past. He says, listen, this is great comfort. It's comfort for the believer that, that maybe you're on your deathbed and say, listen, we'll see you again. It won't just be in heaven, my friend. Guess what? We'll see each other in the air. We'll both be there. That's comfort for the believer here who's lost a loved one, who's gone on, and uh, things that people that we know, we love, family members, and so forth, and yeah, you know they're saved. You, you can be assured you'll see them again, not just in heaven, but in that grand resurrection in the sky. The reality that it's a comfort for us. And those of us who are here on earth, and uh, we're not going to miss out on something if the rapture occurs, and we're not gonna, we'll be caught up together with them in the sky. So much comfort here. Okay. Now, we're spending a lot of time, and I want to say this especially to our younger folks here too, but all of us, we're spending a lot of time considering the rapture and focusing in on this aspect of God's prophetical times. I think that's necessary and crucial and important for us to do so. It is a doctrine that's under attack. It is a doctrine that many people cast some doubt on, and though it's one that the Scriptures clearly teach. And so we want to do so. I will spend a couple more weeks on the, the teaching of the rapture. And the purpose behind that is you and I making sure we understand what the Bible teaches about the rapture how it pictures it, how it presents it and confirms that, also the scriptural foundation for the doctrine. Can I just tell you right now, let me encourage you, the doctrine of the rapture is not a doctrine of man. It's a doctrine of the Bible. It's not something that some group of theologians decided to come through. Let me put it in context of religion. It's not something that some council got together and decided, you know what, this ought to be a church doctrine. That did not happen. It's found here in the Scriptures. And so we want to make sure we understand it, what the Scriptures say exactly about it, that scriptural foundation for this doctrine. And then, as we've already discussed, and we'll continue to do so, how does that impact how we live today? The imminency of this rapture, the, the thought that we're going to be caught up together in the sky, how ought it to affect me today? How ought it to impact me today? And so that is our desire. Now, we're pretty much done here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. However, there's one verse that tells us something that kind of is a good segue into another way the Bible presents the rapture or at least pictures it. Okay? And so that's what we want to use today. So look with me, verse number 16. Again, chapter 4, verse number 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise 
first, okay? So as I like to do as we look at scriptures, let's make a couple simple deductions of we can say, okay, this verse is telling us this, some insight into the rapture here, okay? So number one, we see this. First of all, Jesus Christ is coming to receive his own. Uh, the verse here re- referencing the dead in Christ, right? So he's coming to receive his own at this thing called the rapture in the picture, okay? Number two, secondly, he's coming from heaven. The verse makes that perfectly clear, right? He's coming from heaven. He'll descend from heaven. He'll come here to take his own. Then thirdly, I like this statement, and uh, he does so with a shout, right? And whether it's his shout or somebody else's shout or another form of that shout, the verse says that, right? And uh, with a shout, he'll come, he'll descend from heaven and to claim his own. Now, that just gives us, can I put it this way, a veiled reference to something that many passages in the Scripture, how they present the rapture, how they picture it for you and I. Such passages and verses such as this one, notice what it says here, and it's Romans chapter 7, verse 4. It says this, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now let me ask you, think in your head for a moment, that verse pictures the relationship of you and I as believers, the church, with Christ, how? Well, you see it in the middle. I've emboldened it, right? It says you're not married to the law, you're married to Jesus Christ. You who have believed, the church, you're, you're married to Jesus Christ. That's the picture of that passage. Others confirm it. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 says this, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. Why? For I have espoused you. Now, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. He's saying, listen, I've introduced you. I, I, I brought you to this point where I've espoused you to one husband. Then I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. No, let me ask you, what is that picture in our relationship to Christ? Well, simply that the church is the bride. The church is the the espoused one, the betrothed one, the the promised one to the husband. In this case, he says, listen, it's to Jesus Christ. So we're given in these passages, and we'll look at a couple more even, the reality of this picture being here and uh, of put in the context of marriage, marriage. We'll see many more. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter number 5. You'll turn over there with me. Ephesians chapter number 5. We pick up in verse 22. Obviously, this is probably the most familiar passage that alludes to this picture. This allusion to the relationship of Christ and the church. You and I as believers, Ephesians chapter 5, we pick up in verse 22. It says this, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so that the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man have ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, for of his flesh and of his bones. For this call shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined together unto his wife, and these two shall be one flesh. This is a great, what's the next word? 
This is a great mystery. What is that, Paul? Notice what he says. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. You see what he says? I'm revealing more of the mystery. I'm revealing some things about this relationship and what it looks like. And so what you and I can derive in that last verse of the passage we read makes this clear. The husband-wife relationship here on earth. That relationship is an earthly picture. It's supposed to be an earthly picture in many of aspects of the spiritual truth of the relationship between Christ and his church. Now, there are many passages, we'll look at one more, but there are many passages that is the case. In fact, don't miss this, Paul did not come up with this. As we read in his epistles and his letters, this was not Paul, this is something consistently the Holy Spirit did, yea, Jesus Christ did. Do you realize as we look back in the Gospels and we see often that Jesus Christ relied on the ancient Jewish wedding pattern for many of his parables and teachings? That he used that and brought that into it to to teach about Jesus Christ and the relationship with the church. Why is that important? Because we'll see, as the scriptures say, that follows through all the way through Revelation, the use of the picture of that wedding model, if we might describe it as such. You see, even Jesus Christ, he... He included in different places. In fact, John 14, that's really the climax there as he comes to it and he promises, what, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself. I'm going to take you back uh, to my dad's house. Okay? You see that presented and we find that throughout all of the scriptures in many ways. See, it's often easy to miss the full importance and impact of these marriage, betrothal, relationship pictures, illusions, if we aren't familiar in that day what that looked like okay so if jesus christ is referencing if that paul is referencing what this jewish marriage model relationship kind of looked like what it all pictured and and why did christ use that as an analogy an allusion to the relationship between christ and the church Uh, if we don't know that then we'll miss the importance of it so tonight we'll look at that um, quite a bit we'll consider it but before we do so, let's look at one of the more prolific passages that present this thought. Turn with me to Revelation chapter uh, number 19. Revelation chapter 19. Scripture heavy here at the beginning, and then we'll start tying some things together throughout all the scriptures. Revelation chapter 19. You'll join me there. We'll read in verses 6 through 9. Again, full book of Revelation, prophecy, and such, and we come to chapter 19 near the end of it, right? And we see how this is consistent throughout. Look at chapter 16, or 19, excuse me, verse number 6. It says this, uh, And I heard, as it were, a voice of a great multitude, of many waters, excuse me, let me back up, of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia. We heard a little bit about that from the choir today, right? Alleluia. Okay. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage supper, or excuse me, the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. Verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen and clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Verse 9. And he saith unto me, Write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Now, I I can't help but but I'm excited that in our prophetical studies when we get to look at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we're not going to say a lot about it right now. um, But other than to understand, the reference here is consistent. 
All the way through the New Testament, Jesus Christ in the Gospels, Paul and other of the writers of the epistles, all the way here to Revelation. In fact, the next two or three chapters in Revelation, there is a reference to the bride or wife of Christ. So this is not a one-time picture. This is not a one-time illusion in the Scriptures. It is found through the entirety of the New Testament in this picture of the bride of Christ, the church, you and I as believers, being the bride, the wife of Christ. And it bears heavily upon the doctrine of the rapture. We see it pictured throughout it in many different places. And so we'll get there eventually when we look at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But these prophetical parts all fit together to present the marriage picture, which continues throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Okay? Why, then, the question must be asked. Why does Christ and even the Scriptures use the picture and events of the activities surrounding the marriage as the picture of the rapture of the saints in that relationship? Well, in God's plan and program for the church, he will gather all believers into one body and one church. And the church's role, in turn, is to be like a pure bride. Did you catch it? What we read in Ephesians chapter number 5, that he wants to present us. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But uh, purifying, we're being purified, and, and we're being without spot, without wrinkle, blameless, and so forth. God is preparing us as such. We'll see that throughout. So, the symbolism of what we would call the, the picture of the typical wedding among the Jews and even the Orient. In fact, it goes back as far as the Old Testament in some of the, some of the ways and so forth. In Christ's day and in Paul's day, these types of things, as we'll discuss tonight, were very much in vogue. They were very much common practice among the Jews and others that heard Jesus Christ speak, that heard Paul and read his letters. And so it was uh, um, very much a clear picture of Christ's relationship with the church. We want to consider tonight in light of what does it say about the rapture. So we would say to the wedding that was typical in that day, especially a Jewish wedding, but much of the Orient, there are probably four main parts to it. I'll describe them for you tonight, and we'll make some correlations, and we'll be done. Okay? The first part we would call the payment of the bridal price. The payment of the bridal price. Excuse me. You see, normally in those days, much of you or many of us would know that marriages were arranged by the parents. They would meet, and they together they would come to a, an agreement on a contract to have their children marry. Okay? I haven't quite convinced Reagan of this being a good thing, but uh, I'm still working on it, amen, and uh, parents arranging the, the, the marriage. Often in that day, they didn't even meet each other. Now, I find in that a picture, don't you? None of us have seen Jesus Christ face to face. We have not laid eyes on him, he, in that sense, and so that's a pretty good picture there, but often they would not even uh, see each other beforehand. The contracts were typically legally binding. Once the bridal price had been negotiated, the groom and his family would pay the price. A common term would be the dowry. And they would pay that accordingly. The money and possessions, when they were paid to the family, and that was interesting because often they were intended to be kept by the bride's family. And uh, why, you say? Well, it was actually kind of put, put in hold and, and saved in a sense, just in case something happened to her husband, her new husband, something, he died early, young, or something like that, or even deserted her. And it's kind of interesting. It's referenced in Genesis chapter 31, all the way back there, okay? There we had a terrible father-in-law. You remember his name? His name was Laban. Remember him? Jacob and Leah and Rachel and, and uh, 
Jacob was talking with Leah and Rachel, and they're like, listen, hey, we've got nothing to go back to. There's no, in fact, their terminology is this. There's no inheritance left for us. There's nothing that was left from you paying and working all those years. In fact, it says, our father hath devoured it, is what they said. Our father hath devoured it. So even back then, it was a practice of you're supposed to lay that aside, that price that was paid, just in case something happened to the bride's husband or he deserted her accordingly. It also typically included gifts for the bride. We don't have time to look at all of them. Genesis chapter 24, there's an instance of that. A gift given to the bride as part of this bridal price and so forth. And can't help but think, um, Ephesians chapter number 4, you know what it tells us? God's given us good gifts right now. He's given his bride good gifts too. It's a good picture of it. Now, once that price was paid, the contract of union was fully recognized even by the law. And the New Testament uses the imagery um, that we see Christ's death on the cross is presented to us. And uh, specifically, a great illustration of this is that the verse we referenced this morning, you've been bought with a price, been bought with a price. It's an example of this and truthful, and even Paul alluded to it later. He was saying goodbye to the elders at the church at Ephesus. They were, he was departing from them and heading onwards to, to Rome and so forth. He said this, Take heed therefore unto yourselves, to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. It is a consistent theme through the New Testament of the reality that we've been bought. A price has been paid. And again, it's a great picture that meets or fits into the model that even Christ himself alluded to. He's purchased us. It's already a done deal. And, and I'll be honest with you, when this was done, as I said, and did you catch it? It was legally binding. In other words, no one's going to break it once this price has been paid and so forth. And I, I like that. Can I just tell you right now, if you are God's, you are Jesus Christ, you're still his. It's a guarantee. It's a security. That was very much what that was. The price has been paid. We've taken care of it. And if you're part of the bride today, you'll be part of the bride tomorrow. You'll be part of the bride when the rapture occurs. It's a great picture that found within that. And I, I think that's why we see that illusion throughout the New Testament, the reality that he's paid a price for you and I. Secondly, something we're also familiar with, uh, we see the betrothal of the bride to the groom. Once the bridal price had been paid, and uh, there would usually be a, a simple marriage ceremony in which the marriage covenant took place. The groom and the bride would come together into the, the presence of a few witnesses, family, and so forth. Yet that would take place as much as 12 months before the actual consummation of the marriage. We'll talk about that here in a moment. This period in between this ceremony after that bridal price was paid, now the this ceremony, this covenantal ceremony to when the marriage actually, in a sense, in our minds, happened, the consummation of it and so forth, was honestly sometimes 12 months. In fact, that was typical, 12 months. That was called the betrothal period, betrothal period. In that, from that moment forward, the bride and groom were declared to be for each other. There was an exclu exclusivity to it. The bride being consecrated, sanctified, set apart exclusively for the bridegroom. Now what's neat about that is often part of that ceremony, when that ceremony took place, they would often in that uh, display and demonstrate the covenantal relationship they were entering into. The groom and the bride would drink of the same cup of fruit, uh, or fruit of the vine. I like that because you know what that reminds me of is every time you and I observe the Lord's Supper. What Christ said to his disciples. 
he passed that cup around. And in those days, it would appear from the Gospels that he probably had a cup, and they passed it around. They all took it of him, okay? My wife, I gross my wife out because you know what I do? I sometimes drink and eat after even little baby read. Isn't that gross? I'll do it. I don't like wasting food and things like that. Yeah, some days we think of that, oh, 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 yuck, they're passed around the cup. Do you realize that that is what is pictured in the communion? We're all sitting here together. We're all doing it. We're all drinking of the same cup. And I love that picture within that Jewish wedding ceremony. They both would drink of the same. They were entering into a covenant. And boy, isn't that a beautiful reminder that you and I are now drinking of the same cup of Jesus Christ. We are his. I am his and he is mine. That was the picture and the practice even in that while their betrothal was announced. But then the strange aspect would happen, something that is foreign to our concept of weddings and such in, in our culture and modern age. After the ceremony, and you probably know this, right? The bride would not go with the groom. <laughs> she would return to her home with her parents. He would return to the home of uh, his father. And uh, during that period... Again, it was called the time of betrothal. We understand that from Mary and Joseph, right? We, we, that's the picture. That's what happened uh, there. They were following what I'm describing for you. During this betrothal time, what, what took place, and again, those approximately 12 years, the groom was occupied pretty much with one thing only, preparing a place for his bride. Sounds a lot like John 14, doesn't it? I go to prepare a place for you. Certainly Christ was using that analogy in that picture as he's done many other times. What's interesting, you, you likewise probably know that that typically involved him going home to his father's house. They'd, they'd build an extension to the house, right? They'd build a, a little addition to the house and where he'd get it prepared and ready, that attachment to the property at least. And, and the idea was that I'm going to, uh, look, he's proving to her parents, I'm going to prov provide a secure place and uh, a place where we can begin our lives together. And I I can't help but thinking, you know what? You and I have the best thing ever prepared for a bride. That's called heaven. That's called heaven. I go to prepare a place for you. Beautiful picture. What would happen to her and the bride, this is kind of interesting too and neat. The bride at that time is likewise preparing herself for marriage. She's getting ready for the union. She's, she's preparing for it. In fact, uh, there is the custom among the Jews to, that uh, she would assemble possessions, her treasures, really. In fact, there's a French word, trousseau, uh, that described it. It was kind of like a modern English hope chest, if you might put it that way. And she put things together. She'd, she'd get her treasure. She, in a sense, would, don't miss it, she'd lay up her treasures for when she was married. Now, boys, we think about that picture in the marriage, that's, we can apply the symbolism in many ways. The time between Christ's ascension back to heaven and his return in the clouds is the betrothal time. He's paid the bridal price. He came to earth. He died on the cross. And now it is time that he's gone back home. And as we've seen even in the picture here that um, the church is his espoused bride. The bridal price being paid on the cross. And uh, that price is paid to our individual accounts when we put our faith and trust in him. The union has been made. It's forever binding. Romans said, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing can. It's awaiting the final consummation of the marriage. 
Furthermore, John 14, he is like that groom preparing a place for his bride, preparing a place in heaven for us. And what are you and I doing? We ought to be. Can I remind you? The scriptures say that you and I ought to be preparing for what? Eternity. When we're spiritually married to Jesus Christ, when we are with him forever, in fact, we are called upon to lay up treasures in heaven. Much as that Jewish bride will be laying aside her treasures, preparing them for the time that she would join her husband. Gorgeous picture, beautiful. And then, (laughs) as she does so, the next thing is the anticipated event. Number three, the groom returns to retrieve his bride to take home with him. It's the exciting part, isn't it? I mean, you think about those 12 months, up to 12 months of preparation and things, and he's been preparing, she's been preparing, and it's all coming to a culmination. And so after that time of separation, all is ready and prepared. The time has come. The groom would leave his father's home, and he'd have his attendants with him, and they, uh, they would uh, leave the house. And interesting, this was often at night. And you remember Romans chapter 13, verse 11, I, I alluded to that earlier. The very next verse, verse 12, okay, says this, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. And it's a beautiful theme throughout the Scriptures again. The, the night is coming to a close. The time, that the 11th hour for you and I to do and serve and, and to live and preparation for eternity. And so it's coming to a close. The groom is returning. Often at night he would do so and to take his bride to live with him. There would often be a torch-lit procession with the groom. In fact, the scriptures speak of this. We'll see it in a moment or I'll reference it in a moment. Uh, a, a torch-lit procession with the groom, the best man, his friends, uh, um, and they would go to the bride's home. Now, don't miss this. In common practice there among the Jewish people, and even in the Orient, certainly the bride was expecting her groom to return for her. But she didn't know the precise time of his return. So the groom's arrival was preceded by a shout, which announced her imminent departure to be with him. You say, well, where else do we see that in Scripture? Well, it's interesting. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 1 through 13 is a great illustration that Christ himself gave of this. And even alludes to his return. It's a picture of such. And they're waiting. In fact, uh, the kind of, and a shout was given. In fact, the, the, the Bible records what's the shout that happened when the groom in that parable arrived at the bride's house. Here was the shout that was made. And at midnight, in midnight, there was a, a cry made. And we've heard songs about the midnight cry, right? And you've heard those and so forth, okay? At midnight, there's a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Now, what do you think of immediately that we've already seen? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. And Jesus Christ will descend from heaven with a shout. With a shout. I said that was a veiled reference to what we're seeing here in many different passages and throughout the scriptures, and so it is. He'll return with a shout. Once she was received to him, along with female attendants, and again, the, the, the parable of the virgins even shows that and so forth. The enlarged wedding party returns to the groom's father's house. Wedding guests have been gathered and everything is prepared. And don't miss it. Goes back to his father's house. My friend, wouldn't it be good to be in Jesus Christ's father's house? Be in heaven. Good picture there again. And it marks the last main point, if we could say, or ingredient of that marriage picture. It's this. The marriage would be consummated and celebrated. 
as they returned to his, the groom's father's house, there would be some kind of wedding ceremony, a, a further in front of this many guests and those who such. And then that would be culminated with the happy couple. The, 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 the wedding party would usher them into what was called the hoopah, and that was basically the, the bridal chamber. There they'd be left alone to consummate the, mess, uh, the marriage. Excuse me. Once that had been done, the groom would come out to the wedding party, announce the consummation of the marriage. They then, the wedding party, would go back to the, 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 the wedding guests that had been assembled elsewhere in the, the house of the father. And as they did so, there would be a great wedding feast. Picture again the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, this is quite interesting. That marriage feast would last typically seven days. Not about you, but that sounds like a pretty good Baptist fellowship, amen? Seven days. Last seven days. It's quite interesting. Let, let, let me uh, <laughs> go back up. During that time, or in that part of that ceremony, or after the ceremony, as they ushered the, the groom and the bride to the bridal chamber, it is believed that most often she was veiled. She had a veil over her face, much as sometimes people wear in weddings and things like that and so forth. Well, as the, uh, the, the wedding guests and the family and the wedding party, they feasted for those seven days. Near the end of those seven days, the groom and the bride would emerge and they would come out to uh, where the wedding party was. And uh, at that time, she would be unveiled. In other words, revealed as the bride, as the wife. She would be seen by all in that picture and that veil removed. It's kind of interesting, yeah. This seems to go all the way back to the Old Testament. You remember when Laban, again, we go back to that in Genesis chapter 29. When Laban fooled Jacob and married, had him marry Leah instead of Rachel. You remember what he said to her, or him, excuse me, what Laban said to Jacob? He said, fulfill ye her week. Seven days. Fulfill ye her week do what is proper and normal according to a Jewish tradition or at least pre-Jew, uh, Jewish nation tradition even then. And, and so fulfill her week is what it says there. And as the bride and the groom would come and join the rest of the wedding guests and the wedding party, there would be a huge celebration and very much picturesque of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And boy, we look back on that picture and there is much symbolism here. Okay? As we read a few moments in Revelation chapter number 19, marriage supper of the lamb was going to be that consummation of god's plan for the church our forever eternal union with christ so picture it and again i don't want to jump ahead too much but when you and i as we are raptured as the church or we've gone before and then we are reunited with our bodies and so forth as our spirit when we get to heaven the marriage supper of the lamb is the consummation of the marriage that's why it's interesting in the passages. In fact, the chapters after Revelation 19, therefore, it refers often to the wife of Christ. The consummation has been found in that marriage celebration. And uh, of course, now here, here's where it all ties in, right? What would a wedding be? What would a marriage supper be without the bride? You say, it may be good eating, but ain't what we got here to get, get what we got together to do, amen? You have no bride. How are you having a marriage supper of the Lamb? How are you gathering together and having those events described in this consummation of the marriage? Therefore, we understand and, and grasp the reality that the, the consummation of God's plan for the church, that union with Christ, demands the rapture. And the timing of it, as we have seen. And I like that. Do you, 
Do you remember the seven days that were part of the feast and so forth and how at the end of the seven days or near the end of it, the bride, the groom would come out and in a sense present his bride? Man, I'm telling you, this is exciting. You know what happens at the end of the seven years of the tribulation? Who comes back to earth? Jesus Christ. Who's with him? All the people of heaven. The army, the saints, and so forth is depicted in Revelation. They all come back with him. In many ways, Jesus Christ coming with his bride for all the world to see. As things play out as described in the remainder of Revelation there. You see, God throughout the scriptures chose time and time again to use the beautiful metaphor of marriage. To picture his relationship between Christ and the church, but also his plan for the church. And it shows that God's program and plan for the church demands the return of Jesus Christ for his bride. To go back to heaven with him, to go back to his home, to heaven, and to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, that consummation of the marriage relationship. Can I tell you, I truly believe that John the Revelator understood this, and he grasped it. You know what he said at the end? He said this, and I certainly agree with him. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I don't know about you, but I sure am ready for a wedding feast. I sure am ready for you and I to enjoy everything that God has promised through his word and pictured in his word. Join me in standing.